Good morning. We are very thankful for your presence here this morning, as always. It is great to be together. <clears throat> We're thankful that you've chosen to be here with us this morning, studying a portion of God's Word and offering Him the, the praise and glory He is due. Genesis 18.25 is where we will take our launching point from this morning. And while you're turning to read there, I'll just say a few words by way of where we're headed this morning by way of introduction. The Bible uses many metaphors to help us understand any number of things, to help us understand God, our lives, um, ourselves, sin, salvation, and, and more than that. And we often do the same things. And and one area that's often used is the area of sports. We use sports as analogies for life. And I suppose there are any number of reasons why we do that, but it could include the structure that's involved in sports, the, the teamwork, the camaraderie, there's rules, and there's outcomes, effort being given. Even opposition is sometimes helpful and useful. And so we talk about running the race of life and battling and fighting through difficulties and adversity, and we need to endure and to get to the end. And again, the Bible does this as well. Paul talks about running a race in 1 Corinthians 9 and fighting and beating the air, among other things. We have to play by rules in sports, and so that too is useful. And violating the rules, we understand, can have very severe consequences. If you cheat, if you break the rules, you will be kicked out of the game. And depending on the severity and the frequency, you could be disqualified or even suspended. You might even be banned from the sport, never again able to participate. And again, depending on its severity, we might even retroactively go back and take down banners and take victories out of the record book and dismiss your accomplishments. We might keep you from entering the Hall of Fame even if by numbers you might be worthy to be there, depending on if you cheated or broke the rules. We'll even strip you of titles. Your town will no longer be credited. Your team no longer credited with winning those. The Bible describes life sort of like a game, in that, again, it's a race that we run, a fight that we fight and endure, and we must reach the end. But there's something different in this fight, and it's the result of the one who is in charge of the proceedings. In Genesis 18 and verse 25, God tells Abraham what he's going to do with reference to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as they're having the conversation and going backwards and forwards, Abraham actually intercedes on behalf of the righteous. And he pleads with God that he would not destroy the righteous with the wicked. In fact, Abraham says, what if there's only 50 righteous lacking? You wouldn't destroy them too, would you? That brings us to verse 25, where Abraham says, that be far from thee. To destroy the righteous with the wicked, that be far from thee. And then he asks this question, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? If it is a game of life, then God is the final judge. God is the final arbiter of our participation and whether or not we will win the game. He has rules. 
He has laws. He has a book that governs the participation in how one plays. But it's not simply law. There's grace and there's mercy also. He is concerned not simply with the truth of the matter, though he is. He's also concerned with the spirit of the individuals who play. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Because God is the judge of all the earth, and because God will do right, there is a theme, a thread, if you will, that runs through the Bible, demonstrating his interaction with those who participate in the game of life. What happens when life knocks you down or when you strike out in the game of life? We would say, go to the bench. God would say, take another swing. God would say, take another swing because of who God is. His very character is merciful. That's how Exodus 34 and verse number 6 describes him, that God is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. And so our title this morning is just that. When you strike out, when life knocks you down, then take another swing. We'll look at examples of individuals who struck out in life, and then, if time permits, we'll talk about some application to us this morning. If you have your Bible, join me in Matthew chapter 14. The first batter up, if you will, the first individual is Peter, the apostle. He took many swings, swings, and he, he swung many times. Swing, swung, swam, swim. He struck out. Many times. Later, when I'm talking about embarrassment, y'all remember what y'all did right here. <laughs> I will say, don't let embarrassment keep you down. So I'm going to keep going with this sermon despite my mess up. <laughs> In Matthew chapter 14, verse number 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. It must have been a, a different kind of scene that night. They were first afraid, thinking there was something out there. And Jesus says, be not afraid. It is I, be not afraid. And Peter, when he realizes it's Jesus, he says, Lord, if it is you, then bid me to come out there with you. Peter is asking the Lord to allow him to walk on water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. We could stop there, and you could count on the number of your hands how many people you know have walked on water. Peter did. He got out of the boat, and he walked on water to Jesus. Talk about a hit. Wouldn't you call that a grand slam? That's not just a single. That's walking on water. Peter's out of the boat, and he did that. However, the very next verse, the Bible says, but seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus said, no. Sink, O faithless one. You struck out, and that's it. That's not what the Bible says. No, instead, the Bible says immediately. The Lord wasted no time in telling Peter, you're not done here. Immediately stretched forth his hand, caught him, and said to him, O thou of little faith, where didst thou doubt? There was no reason to doubt. The one who commanded him to walk, get out of the boat and walk on the water could have certainly sustained him on the water. Peter got up and took another swing. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. 
Peter, again, often the first to speak and often swinging for the fences. Beginning in verse number 13, the Bible says, now, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And there was an answer given. There was apparently talk about the Lord and who he was, and there were some suggestions. And so they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets. To which Jesus says, But who do you say that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God another hit. That's fantastic, Peter. In fact, based on that confession, Jesus says, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, the confession that Peter made is what the church is built on. Upon this rock, I will build my church. The fact that I am the Son of God, I will build my church based on that confession, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nothing will stop it, Peter, as you said and God revealed, it will be so. Another hit. Wasn't long before Peter struck out again. If you'll slide down to verse number 21, the Bible there says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and from the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised upon the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Stop long enough to appreciate that. Again, put your hand up and count the number of disciples who took the Lord aside and rebuked him to his face. It's a small number. You know what? Peter just struck out again. And it wouldn't be the last time. Peter came back from this, took more swings. In Matthew 26 and verse 21, Jesus talked about the fact that he would not only be betrayed that night, he would be abandoned and he would be denied. He talked about all of it, and sure enough, all of it came to pass. But Peter said, though all men forsake you, I'll never forsake you. Verse 35, Peter said, even if I have to die with you, you, I will never deny you. All the disciples said the same thing. You know what happens next, don't you? Peter followed afar off. Peter warmed himself by the fire. Peter was accused of being with him, and it wasn't long before we start hearing Peter say, I don't even know the man. About an hour later, another person would approach him and say, surely you were with him. Your speech betrays you. I don't even know the man. It moved Peter to cursing and swearing, the Bible says. I don't know the man. The rooster would crow, and Peter would go out. We talk about striking out. When Jesus returned, or rose from the dead rather, he told those to go and tell his disciples, and then he says this, and Peter. Make sure you tell Peter. 
In John 21, verses 15 to 17, they have a conversation. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. And what did Peter do? He got up. He took more swings. Peter is one of the individuals who preaches Acts chapter 2. We hail the sermon, the first gospel sermon, the one that opened with the keys of the kingdom, entrance into the body of Christ, salvation offered in its fullness. And who's there preaching it? Peter. Peter doesn't just preach Acts 2. He preaches Acts 3. He preaches Acts 4. They threaten Peter, and Peter doesn't stop preaching. In fact, Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, the Bible says they took knowledge of them. They had been with Jesus. When Peter comes back, he swings and he swings and he swings and he swings and he preaches Acts 10, the first Jewish converts, Peter preached that. The first Gentile converts, Peter preached that. Peter was beaten and rejoiced for the opportunity, Acts 5, 40 and 41. Peter wrote 1 Peter, 2 Peter, in which he stirred up by way of remembrance the things that he had done and experienced and that he had written to them and preached to them again. Peter didn't strike out in the game of life. No, Peter came back and took another swing. And God had use for the individual who denied even knowing the Savior. Peter came back and took more swings. He's not the only one. Our second individual, and surely if anybody struck out at the game of life, we might say he did. In Acts chapter 7, maybe we meet him in Acts chapter 6 for the first time. Maybe he's there in Acts chapter 6 in verse number 9, where the Bible says, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians, Alexandria, and some from Cilicia, argued in Asia and rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Maybe Saul of Tarsus is there. Maybe he's disputing with Stephen. He was from Cilicia. He was schooled in the Old Testament. He would have known the Scriptures. Maybe he began in a debate with Stephen and realized, like the others, they couldn't stand up to the wisdom of Stephen. I don't know that he's there in verse 9 and verse 10, but I sure do know he's there at the end of this chapter. I know he's there for the proceedings. Because after Stephen's sermon, there's no break. No, if you drop in at about verse 54, and Stephen is referring to them as stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart, and he's driving home the fact that they have resisted the Holy Spirit as their father did, the Bible will say they gnashed on him with his teeth. They took him out. In fact, verse 57 says they rushed him out, and they began to stone him. And it almost seems as if they took a moment of decorum. And where the Bible says in verse 58, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him in the wilderness. They laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You know who's there is Saul of Tarsus, but this is not the only thing. No, it's just the beginning. 
If you just keep reading in the Acts chapter 8, the Bible says Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. There arose a great persecution. The spearhead of that is Saul of Tarsus. They went out and they buried Stephen in verse number 2. And verse number 3 says, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them into prison, pause long enough to stand where the apostles, where the disciples are standing. Here is an individual dragging you out of your house. He's come to arrest you. For what? Your belief in Jesus. And he's dragging you out. It doesn't just say men. It says men and women dragging them out of their houses. But that's not all he's doing. No, in chapter 9 and verse number 1, the Bible says, Now Saul was still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord and went to the high priest and asked for letters from Damascus, on the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any, here's an individual breathing out threatenings, asking for letters. I need letters and approval to go further and to do more more. I need my jurisdiction spread further so I can get more of them. Later, when he's talking about it, he reveals exactly what his thought processes were. In chapter 22 and verse number 4, he said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding them and putting both men and women into prison. He says, also the chief priest, the high priest, the council elders, they can testify. I got the letters and the permission from them. And he says, I started off to Damascus in order even to bring them to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. In chapter 26, Again, as he is relaying what was going through his mind as he was doing this, verse number 9, he says, So then I thought with myself that I should do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which things I did. He says, and this is what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock them up, not only did I lock many of the saints up in prison, having received letters and authority from the chief priests, but when, he says, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. Verse number 11, he says, I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme. Let me ask you this, what would be involved in that? What would it take for somebody to make you blaspheme the name of Jesus? What would they have to do? Here you are a believer. Saul and Paul says, listen, I tried to make them blaspheme. Well, history says, at least in part, that what they would do is they set up an image. They would demand that the Christian either bow down or renounce Jesus. Blaspheme his name. Curse him. You can't have Jesus. Bow down. They said they'd give him three chances. Sometimes, and maybe, just maybe, it's what Paul later writes to the brethren in Corinth when he says, I think this is good for the present distress. 1 Corinthians 7, 26. What's good, Paul said? He says, there for a man not to marry. Why would it be good under such circumstances not to marry? Because maybe they wouldn't kill you. Maybe it's the case that they would when they broke in. Maybe they would arrest you, and maybe they would bring your wife. And maybe they would say, renounce Christ or we kill her. Maybe they'd bring your children, renounce Christ or we kill them. Paul says, I tried to do everything I could 
to force them to blaspheme. Now, if anybody has struck out at the game of life, this would be our guy, wouldn't it? In fact, his behavior was of such a nature that later, even when he obeyed the truth, people were suspicious. When he talks about it later in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he talks about his past and he now talks about his present. And he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. While he was doing all of those things, he did not know Jesus. While he was doing all of those things, he could have died in that state. While he's doing all of those things, suppose God had said, you struck out. I have no use for you. I don't even want you. It's no wonder he opens verse 12 by saying, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, Yet I was shown mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was abundant with faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. This, he says, is a trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul goes further and he says, though, for this reason I found mercy that in me first— Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for an example to those who would hereafter believe. A person may be living a life completely opposed to God, and maybe they themselves believe, I've struck out, there's no way he could use me. There's no way he could want me. And Paul says that God, through Christ, saved him to demonstrate there's hope for you too. God is effectively saying, Paul, I could use you if you'll take another swing. He did. We now talk about him as the Apostle Paul far more than we do Saul of Tarsus. He planted congregations of the Lord's people. He went on mission trips to spread the gospel. He wrote 13 New Testament epistles. There's only 27 books in the New Testament. He wrote 13 of them. Paul, take another swing, and he did. There's another individual named David. We meet David as a young man in 1 Samuel 16. We meet David because Saul has rejected the Lord, and the Lord has rejected Saul. And it's interesting, in the midst of a sermon saying, take another swing, that God has rejected somebody. Well, if you would read chapter 13 over to chapter 15, you will see that it's not God. It's not that God won't have Saul back, it's that God, Saul won't come back. And since he won't, God then chooses David and David starts out again with home run after home run, we might say. In chapter 17, right after 16, there in chapter 17, David is the one who defeats the giant. David does that as a young man because he defied the army, the, the God of Israel. 
If you just keep reading David's life, you will simply see the trajectory rise. David wrought victories in Egypt or in Israel, conquered nations and did great things. But David struck out. You have to read 2 Samuel 11 to see what David did. Talk about striking out. David the king lusted after another man's wife. David sent for her. He committed adultery with her. She became pregnant, and David added sin to sin and brought back her husband, who was at war for David in Israel. He sent him home, but he didn't go. He brought him back a second time. This time he got him drunk, and he sent him home, but he still didn't go. David now realizing his attempts at cover-up is not working, and so he wrote a letter, sent it back to the captain, Joab, and he told him, make sure you put this man and others in the hottest battle. David commits murder to try to cover it up. Talk about striking out. You know, Saul of Tarsus was ignorant. David wasn't. David did all of these things with understanding of his God. The thing that David did displeased the Lord. David did more than that. In 1 Chronicles 21, in the first seven verses, David will number the people. It seems like a small thing. You're just a, a king with an army, and you're asking, how many soldiers do we have? And it might be a small thing for another nation. It may or may not even be a proper thing for another nation, but not this one. Joab will remind David, it's not about the size of our army, David, as to why we win battles. It's not how good we are as soldiers or how many we have. The Lord will add one or take one away. What difference does it make? And David will say, no, you go tell me how many soldiers I have. Joab was trying to remind David that the Lord is the winner of our battles. And David sure displeased God. But he took another swing. In chapter 21 of verse number 8, the Bible says that David said, I have sinned about numbering the people. And if it's true, what most believe is that Psalm 51 was written after the sin with Bathsheba, and David acknowledged that sin, pled for forgiveness. In fact, if you read the psalm, he opens by saying, I'm not bargaining, I'm, 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 I'm guilty and I'm wrong. And so he says, be gracious to me, O God. He says, wash me thoroughly against thee and thee only have I sinned. Purge me. He pleads and he later acknowledges that God doesn't want sacrifices. If you did, I'd bring them. The sacrifice of the Lord is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's how you get back in the game. That's how you take another swing, and David did. We know him arguably as the greatest king in Israel, a prophet, 2 Samuel 7 and verse number 12, the one from whom Christ's lineage will come, Matthew chapter 1, spoken of as predicting the Christ coming, Acts 2, 25 to 31, even to some degree being a forerunner, a likeness of the Christ himself. David, take another swing, and he did. 
And as you read your New Testament, it just says that over and over and over again. Whether you're a heathen or a child of God, if you strike out, God says, come back, take another swing. The Thessalonians did. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, Paul says, our entrance in unto you, show us what manner of work we had among you and how you turned from idols to serve the living God. They turned, they changed, they found out they were wrong, they took another swing, got back in the game. Paul says, your works have been spread abroad. Everybody knows the sound of you has spread out all over the world. The Corinthians, they went from being that which could not enter into the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 9, where Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, or homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covets, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul says, that's what you were. When he went into Corinth in Acts chapter 18, he preached the gospel there. That's what they were when he arrived, but it's not what they were when he left. Because Acts 18 and verse number 8, the Bible says, many of the Corinthians hearing, believed, and were baptized. And so Paul says, but such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were justified, but you were sanctified. Why? Because the judge of all the earth says you haven't struck out. The, the umpire of the game says, get back in. You can keep playing. You can swing again. You can take another swing with God. And so the Corinthians did, and they were washed and justified in the name of God and the Spirit of the Lord. Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, you will meet him. At one point, he bewitched or tricked people. He deceived them, and then he heard the gospel. He changed, became a Christian. But if you keep reading in Acts chapter 8, not shortly after becoming a Christian, some of the old ways must have crept back into his mind. Because when he saw through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Spirit was given, he said, let me buy that power. To which they said, repent. And he begged with them, please pray for me that none of these things which you've spoken of come upon me. Old Testament, New Testament, the judge of all the earth does right. And the judge of all the earth has use for you. Those Assyrians, they repented and God forgave. Let's make some points of application with regards to us. It might be the case that life has or you have struck out. And maybe like many, you've begun to feel like that's it. I'm just of no use to God. No reason to be around his people. I've just struck out at the game of life. How can you learn to take another swing? Number one, avoid what I heard described as plum disease. I know it sounds like plum, but that's not what I'm saying, though that's a wonderful fruit. This is plum, P-L-O-M, and what I was told it stands for is poor little old me. You'll want to avoid this disease. Some people make mistakes and strike out and do bad things, and they just feel like that's it. Woe is me. I'm just done. I'm good for nothing. Every time you meet them, you're trying to inflate air into them. They have a perpetual leak. Psst. Listen, you'll want to avoid that. 
You're not done until you stop swinging. So avoid this and get back in the batter's box of life and get your bat up and look the fastball of life in the eye and swing. And if you strike out, learn from it and take another swing. To that end, you'll want to refuse pride, number two. Some people can't believe they messed up. In fact, that's all they talk about every time you talk to them is, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that. Now, why would that be prideful? Because what did you think you were capable of? Did you think you had mastered life so much that you couldn't mess up? Did you have it so firmly fixed in your mind like Peter? I'll never deny you. I'll die with you. And it wasn't long before he was denying him. And so maybe that's been you. Maybe you have thought for whatever reason, there's no way I can fail. I'm not like other people. I don't do bad stuff. And then pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And now you've fallen. And what do you do now? I can't believe it. I can't believe it's me. May I suggest please believe it? Start there. It was you, and you did do it. And so resist the urge and the feeling that I somehow can't believe I did it. It's the common lot of all men. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse number 13, Paul writes to the brethren there, there's no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape? Okay, you did it. Own it and then get back in the game. Abraham did lie about Sarah. He did. David did commit adultery. He did murder the man. He did do it. You did it. Okay. Now what? Get back in the game. Peter denied the Lord. Number three, grow in your faith. We talk about faith. We have to talk about who that's in. Our faith is never in ourselves. It's in God. And sometimes the failings become as a result of not trusting Him, but trusting in ourselves. Sometimes that's the very cause of the failure. And so grow your faith. God will forgive. There is no doubt about it but we must repent. In order to get back in the game, it's not a question of if God will forgive. He's very clear here. But it is a matter of whether or not you will repent to get back in the game. God will say, take another swing, but the Bible will emphasize that must be done lawfully. The Corinthians had to change. They couldn't keep doing the things they were doing and then keep taking swings. No, you change that, then get back in the game. You can't keep a cork in your bat and then keep swinging. No, you, you get the cork out of the bat. And if you do, and when you do, God will say, come back and let's go forward. Take another swing. Number four, have courage to try. This is the hardest part, I suppose. The hardest part is the trying, because sometimes there's embarrassment. Sometimes it's just the truth. You did something. You shouldn't have done that. And then people find out, and now you're embarrassed. Not simply that you did it. You're embarrassed that they found out that you did it. 
Maybe they held you up in a pretty favorable light. Maybe you were a leader in one way or another. Maybe you had a position and maybe you had influenced others. Maybe you had taught other individuals how to live the life and now you failed it and now they know. And so you're embarrassed. But don't you think the early church knew Peter denied the Lord? Don't you think word got around about that? Don't you think that they were aware that the other apostles abandoned the Lord? That they ran away and left him alone? Don't you think that got out? Don't you think Saul of Tarsus, who would become Paul when he tried to join or add himself or come in, symbol among, they said, no, don't you think they knew about it? Yeah, people will know. It is embarrassing. They knew what David did, and he was still their king. No doubt it was embarrassing. In fact, David said, I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. But don't let embarrassment keep you from getting back in the game. Their shame. For some people, they're so ashamed that they can't get over it. There's guilt. I can't get past it. There's nothing I can do. I can't forgive myself. To that end, may I urge you stop trying. I get it. I do. I don't spend my life trying to be difficult for the sake of being difficult, but I just think that sometimes people use phrases and, and ideas that are just inconsistent with Scripture. I've never read in the Bible, forgive yourself. I've just never read that. I understand the concept. I understand what we mean, but it's just not biblical. I've never read it, and here's the problem with it. You can't. By definition, your sins against God now, I can understand you hurt yourself and maybe you hurt others, but David has it right when he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. And John's not wrong when he says sin is the transgression of the law. That's what sin is. And so if you've sinned, stop trying to forgive yourself. Ask God to forgive you and trust that he has. Then you can move on. I can't forgive myself. Well, you're right. But if God forgives you, you can let go of the guilt. You can let go of the shame. And you can walk with him in newness of life. David had to. Peter had to. In Luke 15 and verse 17, the Bible says that young man in that pig's pen came to himself. And he got up out of the pig's pen. The best part of that narrative is that he got out of the pig's pen and he went home to his father. Life after that will be different and no doubt better. Let me suggest that you consider the consequences and ramifications if you don't take another swing. If you don't get back into the game of life with God, spiritually speaking, if you don't do that, then think about what that means to future generations. You know, you're not the only one in question. Maybe you're a father or a mother. Maybe you're a husband or a wife. Your actions will have consequences. It will have implications. There will be ripples that go out as a result of that. 
And maybe if you don't get back into the game, maybe your children never know there's a game to be played. Maybe your children never learn about the church, never learn about the Christ. Maybe the next four or five generations are subjected to living in darkness and sin without the light of the Lord because you refused to get back into the game and take another swing. Biblically speaking, it doesn't matter what you've done. All of these people in the Bible have struck out at various times in their lives, and if they repented, God would have them back. So maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's money issues. Maybe it's fornication or homosexuality. Maybe I've left the Lord. The truth is you only strike out if you stop swinging. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's really not the question. The judge of all the earth will do right. The judge of all the earth will say, take another swing. The only question is, will you? Will you come to Jesus? Will you come to God? Will you get back in the game and live for him? Not a Christian this morning, we beg you to become one. To believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that's what this is all about. It's about redemption. It's about reconciliation. It's about after the sin occurs, God making provisions for you to come back. And those provisions are in Jesus and through the obedience to the gospel. Jesus is the Son of God. Would you believe it? Would you confess or repent, change your heart and your mind? Would you confess the name of Jesus and be buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins? And God will say to you, now walk in newness of life and live a life that's faithful. But what if I fall again? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ will keep cleansing us. Get up and keep walking and keep walking. If you've never obeyed the gospel, do so this morning. If you are his child, friends, come back if you need to. Do not stop swinging in the game of life. Do not quit on the Lord. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.